Hello, it's Basha here and you're listening to Tortoise. Following the death of the Queen, we thought you might like to listen to a series that we've been working on for some months. It's called The Second Elizabethan Age and it's by Sir Richard Lambert, who was the editor of the Financial Times and also chair of the British Museum. It charts the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. And I guess it is, in essence, you could say a study of her relationships from her prime ministers to journalists and the media to her subjects, the British people. We're putting all six episodes here in the feed and we'll be back to our normal programming soon with one investigation every week. The monarchy is the one institution at the centre of the UK's public life that has gone largely unchallenged over the past 70 years. The House of Lords was transformed in 1999 when the automatic right of hereditary peers to sit in the House was abolished. Changes in the Commons have been less obvious but still marked with the growing power of the Prime Minister and the Downing Street machine, leading to a significant shift in the relationship between the executive and the legislator over recent decades. The Church of England and the military both now play much less of a part in public life than they did in the immediate post-war years. But the monarchy is different. Serious politicians never discuss its role and there's no momentum behind the idea of a republic. So the questions for today are, why is that? And how might things change with the passing of Queen Elizabeth? To discuss these and other issues, I'm joined by Professor Vernon Bogdanor of King's College London and former Professor of Government at Oxford, and the author of many books that touch on these subjects, including Monarchy and the Constitution and the New British Constitution. For Tortoise, I'm Richard Lambert. Uh, Vernon, perhaps the starting point is the stability of the monarchy and how it's lasted pretty much unchanged for a very long time during the reign of the Queen. Just about everything else in the way of national institutions has changed. The House of Lords, House of Commons, much more power shifted to the executive, the army, the church. Why do you think the monarchy has changed so little over the last 70 years? Well, I think the monarchy has changed, but the changes have hardly been noticeable. But if we go back to the time of the Queen's accession in 1952, Britain was a very different country. L.P. Hartley famously said, the past is a different country, they do things differently there. At that time, there was a considerable amount of deference and no one dreamt of questioning the Queen's role and it was based on ceremonial, tradition and religion. And it's based now on what? What's changed? Well, it's changed very considerably from being a ceremonial and rather mystical institution to being what I would call a public service institution. That is, it's judged not by whether it fits in with tradition, but by whether it does any good on utilitarian grounds. And I think the Queen has noticed that, and so perhaps even more has the Prince of Wales. They realise the monarchy rests on consent and that consent is based not solely on the monarchy being seen, but on the monarchy actually being seen to do. And that's a tremendous change from 1952. To do useful things. To do public service work, perhaps to fill in the interstices where politicians can't act, because, of course, the work has to be non-political. One very good example is the Prince of Wales Trust, which helps the unemployed, people down in their luck, ex-prisoners and so on, and has got jobs for about a million people. And this is, a, I think, a good example of the monarchy actually doing something 
that is very useful? Uh, some, obviously, people take a different view. Uh, I mean, for example, one or two, David Canadine, I'm thinking of, he has argued that the monarchy has served as a all-purpose antidote to British decline. It sort of cheers us up as the economy falters and fails. And he says that foreigners are interested because it's a soap opera, only better. What do you say to that? The monarchy brings a form of stability in often very difficult times and ensures some degree of legitimacy to British institutions. And it's interesting that monarchy survives in Britain and in a few countries, primarily in northwestern Europe, which are highly stable. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that the monarchy is a cause of stability. It's the other way round. It's because we've been stable. We haven't had a change of regime since the 17th century. It's because of that that the monarchy survives. And its survival, I believe, is a good way of, as it were, making change acceptable. It's interesting that left-wing prime ministers such as Clement Attlee and Harold Wilson also perhaps Tony Blair, have been particularly supportive of the monarchy. And the monarchy does secure that sense of legitimacy, which in some sense holds us all together. How much has the success of the monarchy during Queen Elizabeth's reign been to do with her own personality? Well, of course, she's played an enormous role in ensuring the success of the monarchy. And what she has, I think is an intuitive understanding of what one might call the soul of the British people. At the end of Queen Victoria's reign, Lord Salisbury, the Prime Minister, said, when Queen Victoria spoke, I knew what the mass of middle-class people in Britain would think. And that's very remarkable because Queen Victoria hardly travelled at all, certainly in the last years of her reign, but she did have this understanding. And I think that the Queen has that understanding too, and that perhaps is the key requirement for a modern sovereign. We see that on all sorts of occasions, most obviously at the commemoration at the Cenotaph every November. Then at special events like the two COVID broadcasts that she made, the broadcast at the time of the 70th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day, the 70th anniversary of D-Day, she expressed the feeling of the nation. She expressed, if you like, the soul of the nation in a way which no politician could really do. What I find most remarkable about her performance, in a way, is the sort of self-control and self-discipline and the capacity to remain, as it were, above the hurly-burly. Obviously, no interest in political controversy. Actually, rather thought that politicians were all pretty much the same, as far as I could tell from uh, Crossman's diaries. Is that kind of approach sustainable, do you think? Do you think it's possible for her successor to take that view, to manage to remain in the public eye, but to have this incredible self-control and listening to speeches, not to grimace or to frown or to never to fall asleep on the job. Do you think anybody else could do that? The Queen, of course, is very much a product of the wartime generation. Yeah. When you simply had to keep your emotions under control or you could not function. Now, the Prince of Wales, when he becomes king, obviously he comes from a different generation. But nevertheless... He knows what monarchy requires, and he knows also that his role would change. Now, some people think it's rather strange that your role changes, but it actually isn't. For example, if you're a barrister and become a judge, your role changes. You can't be 
partisan in a way you can as a barrister. If you're a backbench MP and become a minister, you're bound by collective responsibility. If you're Boris Johnson, everybody thinks you'll behave responsibly when you grow up, but that didn't seem to work. Well, I was going to say, Richard, if you're a journalist and become an editor, as you've done, your role changes then as well. So it's something that a lot of people experience, and no one knows more than the Prince of Wales what that change requires. So my answer to your question is I think, yes, he will do the same sort of thing as the Queen. His style will be different because he's a different person, but the essence will remain the same. When you think of the challenges that the new King will face... They're quite broadly based, and some of them the Queen was particularly well-placed to handle. For example, the strains and stresses in the United Kingdom holding the four nations together. She, in a way, represented all four nations so that she didn't seem to be particularly English or Scottish. Will King Charles be able to manage that? Will he have the capacity to engage in a country which is much more diverse? And one question I'd love you to ponder on is, What's the coronation going to be like? It can't possibly be like what it was in 1953. What will have to be done in the coronation to make it clear that the world has changed in the way you have described? Well, of course, you raise a number of questions here. Britain is now what it wasn't in 1952, a multinational, multi-ethnic and multi-denominational society. And the monarchy has to reflect that. I think the Queen has done that very well. And, of course, if you're head of the Commonwealth, you can't but be aware of the multi-ethnic nation Britain has become because, after all, in the Commonwealth, the majority of people are not white. So any sensible monarch of Britain has to take that factor into account. You're right, the coronation does seem to go against that because it's an Anglican religious service. has been so for hundreds of years. And I think it would require legislation to change that, which is not going to happen. And it does appear odd because the Queen was confirmed at her coronation as Queen only after she promised to obey the establishment of the Church of England. Although in practice there is religious equality in Britain, nevertheless the fact of an established church may make people who feel they don't belong to the Church of England that they're second-class citizens in some way. Now, the new king, I think, will do his best to avoid that impression. As I say, you can't alter the coronation ceremony. What he will do, I suspect, is to hold a multi-denominational service of some kind after the coronation Ah, and make clear that he's there to represent all faiths and those of no particular faith. I think that would be an important note to strike in the first days of his reign because obviously he's very conscious of this problem and the coronation in an ideal world would be modernised. It probably won't happen. It was arguably out of date even in 1952. Well, it certainly was. I mean, some of the mumbo-jumbo in 1953 was astonishing. And it wasn't all legislated. The Archbishop made up some of that stuff himself. Yes, and the Duke of Edinburgh himself wanted the ceremony to be modernised, but was told it was too late. And it was very odd that the House of Lords peers were represented at the coronation service, but not members of the House of Commons. And the leader of the opposition, Clement Attlee, former prime minister, and his deputy both made a complaint about that, but were again told it was too late to do anything about it. Well, they I'm won't sure be able that, to get all the lords in this time. There's just too many of them. There so. are too many peers, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that will be altered. There'll be marginal changes, but not perhaps the radical change that some people want. Of course, the special position of the 
coronation, the religious ceremony, which isn't paralleled, I think, in any European country, is there primarily because the Church of England is an established church. Now, whether it ought to be established or not is a matter for the politicians and not for the Queen. And it's certainly not going to change in the next uh, year or two. So that is indeed um, that is how it will be. Thinking of the um, challenges facing the new king, one of the themes that has arisen thinking about this whole series has been that of the engagement of young people in the monarchy. And it seems to me, in a way, the biggest challenge is how to make the monarchy seem relevant to young people. If you look at the opinion polls, 30% are in favour of monarchy, 30% are indifferent, and rather more higher proportion don't have any views at all. And in a world where news information comes as it does now through US-based streaming platforms, you just wonder how that engagement will change. It doesn't seem to me likely that as people grow older, they will become more committed to royalty. And that's a problem for for the monarchy, it seems to me, going forward. This is certainly a problem, and you're right to put your finger on it. Although, broadly speaking, support for the monarchy has remained highly stable in the opinion polls for many years. It's one of the most stable indicators of all questions that opinion pollsters ask. But it's certainly true, as you say, that amongst the young, there is some growing scepticism. And the great danger, I think, for the monarchy is that some of the ceremonies, flummery, I think you called it a little while ago, will appear irrelevant to them. For example, at the Accession Council, the first promise that the new king has to make is to support the established Church of Scotland, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And I think many young people say, well, what has that got to do with me? And then at the Accession Council last time, there were various dignitaries present and what were called other gentlemen of quality. Yeah. Now, I don't think we that's a phrase that will be used yeah. uh, today. But, I mean, there are other things too. I mean, like the Queen's speech irritates me, the way all that flummery takes place in Westminster. And that's not the monarch's fault. But of course, the parliamentarians love black rod banging on the door. It's all complete nonsense. Can that be changed, do you think? Is there some way we could get rid of all that stuff? Well, there is an argument in favour of it, that government, after all, is a pretty dull business. And isn't it a mistake to make it appear too dull? When the Queen comes in the royal coach and you see these no doubt antiquated officials knocking at the door and the Queen reading the speech, doesn't that add a little bit of glamour to what is otherwise a fairly dull business? There's a twinkle in your eye, Vernon, and I'm not going to discuss Black Rod or anybody like that, but I'll take your point. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Vernon, can we talk about the Commonwealth a little? I think you could make the case that the Queen was the architect of the Commonwealth that it might well not have survived had she not intervened on two or three important occasions and that she was a kind of important calming influence on a very large group of diverse nations. Is that your feeling? What do you think about it all that? Yes, I was told by a former private secretary to the Queen that without her, the Commonwealth would, in fact, have disintegrated. And as you say, she's the founder of the modern, if you like, multiracial Commonwealth. Yeah because the Commonwealth changed enormously in the late 1940s when India became independent because she was the first non-white country to become independent. South Africa was non-white. And it was also a republic. Non-whites didn't have a vote, a choice. And India did not want to remain a monarchy because she said the previous Commonwealth countries, countries like Canada, Australia and New Zealand, They were peopled primarily by British settlers. Now, India was not peopled 
by British settlers. It was a totally different country, and therefore they did not want to acknowledge the king as head of their state, but they nevertheless wanted to remain in the Commonwealth. And a formula was eventually agreed that India would become a totally independent republic. The king, George VI at the time, and then the queen, would play no part whatever in their constitution. But they would recognise the king and then the queen as head of the Commonwealth. Now, that's a purely symbolic position. It has no constitutional role because the Indians and later on the other African and Asian countries in the Commonwealth would not accept uh, the British head of state as part of their constitution. But they all recognise the queen uh, as head of the Commonwealth. It's a purely symbolic position and unlike the monarchy, not a hereditary position, though the Commonwealth has agreed that the Prince of Wales, when he becomes king, will also be head of the Commonwealth. And uh, the Commonwealth is a purely consultative organisation. It has no powers over individual members at all. It can't be a super state. None of the republics would have accepted that. But it's a valuable organisation because it links up people of different religions and ethnicities, and that must be important in the modern world. My sense in the last years, it's rather lost its way. It doesn't seem to have clear leadership or a clear role. Like you, I agree that it's a values-based organisation. And there there are ideas, arguments where a coherent approach from the Commonwealth would be valuable. I'm thinking of um, climate change, for example, or vaccine diplomacy, all these things. But it doesn't seem to do much in that respect or hasn't seemed to have done much. Well, the Commonwealth lays down certain values. And if countries are shown to be in serious breach of those values, it can be expelled or not admitted. That, of course, happened in 1961 to South Africa when she wanted to become a republic, but the rest of the Commonwealth refused to admit her while she was following racialist policies. And other countries have from time to time been expelled from the Commonwealth because they would not accept its values. They deviated from, from it in an extreme way. Now, the Commonwealth must be an attractive organisation because new countries want yeah, to join it, that's really including countries that have not been part of the empire. For example, Rwanda and yeah. Cameroon, they've yeah. been part of the British Empire, but nevertheless they want to join it. And why do you think that is? Why does Rwanda want to be a member of the Commonwealth? It has an attractive power simply because it brings people together and enables a dialogue across ethnicities, across religion, across the colour line. And... It's an extraordinary change which has occurred in the Queen's lifetime, a movement from empire, which is after all based on dominion, to commonwealth, which is based on the sovereign equality of nations. It used to be called the British Commonwealth. Of course, it's not that anymore. Every country in the Commonwealth is equal. There are only two countries under British rule that have not wished to join the Commonwealth. One was Ireland, which of course was part of the United Kingdom, and the other was Burma, which uh, is now Myanmar. And Burma might well have joined if the arrangement about India had been made known to her at the time. But I think she decided not to join before that possibility was laid before her. A really important piece of glue in the Commonwealth was Queen Elizabeth. I mean, she knew most of the players well. She'd known most of their predecessors well. She seemed to have a capacity to have friendly relationships with people, even when they were throwing sticks of dynamite at the country in the United Nations. She had that capacity. It'll be quite difficult for a new monarch to take on those kinds of relationships and maintain them in that way. 
Yes, it is very difficult, and what is fundamental is that the role of head of the Commonwealth should not be seen as simply an extension of the role of Queen of Britain. And the Queen did that very well, as you mentioned earlier, on issues like apartheid in South Africa, sanctions against Rhodesia, where she expressed herself as in sympathy with the African countries, not so much with Britain. And it was very interesting, in the mid-1980s, when the Sunday Times suggested that there were differences of view between Margaret Thatcher and the Queen, the headline of the newspaper at the time was Our African Queen. And I think there's an argument for saying that the Queen is even more popular in Africa than she is in even some of the other Commonwealth monarchies, that the African republics feel very strongly that the Queen is on their side. And as I recall it, that headline in the Sunday Times actually came from the press office in Buckingham Palace. So so there was some substance. That that, that I was unaware of. Uh, I, I believe that was the case. Anyway, so there's the Commonwealth. What about the heads of state in countries around the world? Does that matter? Should we hope that King Charles will see through his reign uh, Canada and Australia and others still under his royal scepter, or doesn't it matter? There are a small number of Commonwealth countries which remain monarchies, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, a few countries in the Caribbean and a few small states in the South Pacific. Now, the basis for that was, at the beginning of the Queen's reign, being Australian or Canadian was another way of being British. Robert Menzies, the Prime Minister of Australia, used to say he was British to his bootstraps. And it was like being Scottish or Welsh, which, unless you're a nationalist, you see as another way of being British. Now, that's not the case in Australia anymore, I think. Australians feel Australian and they don't really feel British. And therefore, although the referendum on abolishing the monarchy was defeated in 1999, I think it's a question in Australia not of if, but of when. And I think that's true of many of the other realms. It is slightly outdated because the Queen can't really be Queen of Australia in the same way as she's Queen of Britain. And in fact, most of her functions are undertaken by a Governor-General. And many people are unaware that the Governor-General represents the Queen. How many of us can name the Governor-General of Australia? I, I certainly can't. So I think that many of the monarchies, the realms as they're called, will become republics. That doesn't matter as long as they remain in the Commonwealth. The important thing is the Commonwealth link, not whether a country is a monarchy or a republic. And of course, the arguments for a republic in countries like Australia and Canada are quite different from those in Britain, because as I've said, they have a non-resident head of state, which you may say is rather peculiar. It's interesting to me politicians don't discuss republic. Even Jeremy Corbyn, when he was leading the Labour Party, he steered well clear of any discussion. Back in the 60s, cabinet members like Crossman and Ben were Republicans and did talk about it. Why don't people talk about it now? And will this become more of a subject of discussion as the occupant of the throne changes? I don't think Crossman and Ben expressed their republicanism much in public. Their private views were certainly republican, as you say. Mm. And you raise an interesting point here that it says something about the monarchy that no politician, however left-wing or radical, will dare make a speech in public saying that the monarchy should be abolished. And I remember when I used to be at Oxford teaching pupils, many of whom came from abroad, many from America, I would tell them, you can say what you like in a pub talking to British people... (laughs) But one thing I think you shouldn't say is that you shouldn't criticise the monarchy. I think that would really annoy people. And I think that is probably still true. Severe criticism of the Queen would be much resented 
by people, and there is a taboo on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's easy to think of negative reasons why the current arrangements will continue for the foreseeable future. For me, they would include, you know, the, the fact that the monarchy is infused in our political system. Changing it would require years of parliamentary time and would make the Brexit debate look like a walk in the park. Another reason is that no one would want a politician to take over as president because we don't trust politicians. We saw what happened in Australia where there was a majority for a republic, but they couldn't agree on how to replace it. So that's another reason. These are all rather negative reasons. Give us some positive ones for why you think that the, the monarchy will continue for a generation or more to come. I think because the Queen is someone without a political history, probably the only person in the country without a political history, she's in the best position to represent the whole nation. Anyone else has a political history and is therefore by definition divisive. Sometimes people say that there should be a member of the great and the good who could be president. It's very difficult to think of such candidates now in the post-Thatcher era, but before the Thatcher era, some people suggested Lord Franks, yeah. who was chairman of many royal commissions. But the trouble is, someone like Lord Franks wouldn't be chosen because the choice would be in the hands of the political parties and they would choose one of their own. And it would probably be a retired politician put out to grass. And that sort of person wouldn't represent the country in the way that the Queen can. Here's what worries me, then, which is this. I think that the nature of our politics has changed in the last few years, particularly in the last couple of years under Prime Minister Johnson. The executive has taken a greater power from the legislature, partly driven by the pandemic and the emergency actions that were taken, partly driven by Brexit and the consequences of that, partly driven by the Prime Minister's own personality. And indeed, we had Jacob Rees-Mogg, not so long ago when he was leader of the House, saying we are now effectively a presidential system. And we had Boris Johnson in the initial moments when it looked as though everybody was resigning and he was resisting resignation. He said, I have the mandate from 14 million people. In saying that, he was saying, I'm accountable to the people, not to Parliament, which would be a constitutional upheaval of some scale. First of all, do you think it's the case that the United Kingdom is becoming more presidential in its political style? And second, if it is, won't we need more checks and balances in the system than those that can be provided by a monarch who almost by necessity avoids bunch-ups with politicians? Well, you've raised a large number of questions here. I'm always rather sceptical of people who say that the prime minister has become more presidential it's uh, good to be sceptical of Jacob Rees-Mogg, I can see that, but it's, there is some evidence in it, I think. Isn't there? This proposition was first put forward in the days of Sir Robert Peel in the 1840s. Okay. And then people said it about Gladstone, who prepared his first Irish Home Rule Bill without showing it to the cabinet. The first they saw of it when it was laid on the table. Ah. Or then if you take Arthur Balfour, not thought of perhaps a strong prime minister, who in 1903 simply sacked three trade ministers or Harold Macmillan in 1962, who sacked seven cabinet ministers in the so-called Night of the Long Knives, yeah. the wrong seven, Jeremy Thorpe, the liberal leader, said. And then people said that about Margaret Thatcher. And I think we have an ebb and flow of prime ministerial power depending upon the electoral strength of that prime minister. Now, we gave Boris Johnson considerable power in the election 
by giving him a majority of 80 in the 2019 general election. We don't know whether future prime ministers will have such large majorities, but we decide how much power the prime minister has. Having said that, I think you are right that we don't have sufficient checks on the executive as a whole. And that's been more true since we left the European Union because then we were under a constitution, in effect, the treaties of the European Union. There were all sorts of things governments couldn't do even if they wanted to. One good example is controlling EU immigration, which would be unlawful. And we have now become in danger, I think, of reverting to what Lord Hailsham called an elective dictatorship. So I'm with you that we need checks and balances. Indeed, I would go further. I think we ought to emulate almost every other democracy by having a codified constitution. But the Queen, you're right, the Queen is not a check or balance on the government and hasn't been in modern times and I don't think ever could be. The monarch That's not the monarch's role. It's not primarily constitutional as head of state It's as head of the nation, or if you like, the multinational kingdom, which we have become. And that's the more important function than the purely constitutional one, where the discretionary powers have been reduced to almost nothing. So we do need checks and balances, but that's not for the monarchy to provide. Indeed, I completely agree. So let's just finish by thinking about the new king and the challenges he will face and the opportunities, actually, he will have of making his role and the shape and happiness of the country improved. I think he's paid particular attention to the role of ethnic minorities. After the tragedy of 9-11, he was in the forefront of relationships with the Muslim community, ensuring that people didn't identify Muslims with the small number of fanatical extremists. He's also taken a particular role, I think, with the young, and particularly the young unemployed, He's helped to secure jobs for many young people who've perhaps fallen down on their luck and so on. So I think he has reached elements which perhaps the monarchy hadn't reached before. And I think the Duke of Cambridge will continue in that role. And I think the Prince of Wales, in some sense, is the founder of the public service monarchy that we talked about earlier. He's appreciated perhaps more than anyone that the monarchy to survive must show its practical and utilitarian. It's no longer enough for it simply to be seen. It has also to be seen to be doing. And so I think the monarch is in in very safe hands. The style will change because he's a different person. One way in which I think it will change is patronage of the arts. As we know, the prince is a great devotee of Shakespeare. He's very fond of painting. He's an amateur painter, very fond of classical music. I think we'll see a lot more sponsorship of the arts at Buckingham Palace, which must surely be a good thing. Not just the Queen and... uh... Uh, Paddington Bear. That's that's a good way to end, Vernon. Thank you very much indeed. And that brings this series to a close. So what, in the end, do we make of the Second Elizabethan Age? It turned out to be nothing like the fantasies that were expressed at the time of the coronation in 1953. But it would be quite wrong to portray this as a period of national decline, from empire to offshore island. In most respects, the United Kingdom is a more tolerant, richer, more liberal, more diverse and less complacent society than it was back then. And Queen Elizabeth must take her share of credit as head of the nation for going with the flow 
and helping the country along the path of change. You've been listening to The Second Elizabethan Age, a Tortoise Media production. It was written and presented by me, Richard Lambert. It was produced and sound designed by Oliver Sanders. And the executive producer is Jasper Corbett. That was Sir Richard Lambert, who was the chair of the British Museum and is the former editor of the Financial Times. If you'd like to listen to more of Tortoise's reporting on the Queen, you can join us as a member. Just go to tortoisemedia.com.